You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sofia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. Today's episode has been a long time coming. I recorded this episode back in December, but wanted to save it for last in season one. Many of my guests in this podcast are founders, freelancers, and social entrepreneurs. But so much of impactful work is done by people with a good old 9-to-5 that it seems unfair to leave them unrepresented. So today, I'm speaking with an old friend of mine who has been nothing short of entrepreneurial in building her own 9-to-5 career. I've limited the editing on this episode because it does such a great job at illustrating how messy and non-linear dream careers can be and what exactly it takes to build one. So here's the interview in its full, nearly unabridged glory. Happy listening! Okay, so to begin with, can you introduce yourself um, and just say your name, where you live, where you work, and what you do? Yes, I'd love to. Uh, Though I guess from the very beginning, I always hesitate with that question because I never know whether to introduce myself as Barbara Svenik or Barbara Svenich. Um, and I never know if I, if I do the latter, if I end up sounding like a douchebag, because otherwise I present as this like American, uh, I speak English with no accent, but then all of a sudden I introduce myself as that about Spanish. So, um, I guess I'll, for the purpose of this podcast, uh, where I'm bringing my full self <laughs> to the table, uh, I'll say that my name is Barbara Spanish and I live in New York city in Brooklyn. And I'm a data scientist at DonorsChoose.org. Great. So right away, I want to ask you why there are two ways in which you introduce yourself and what's the story behind that? Yeah, so I'm originally from the former Yugoslavia. My family and I, we came to the United States as refugees in the early 90s uh, during the war. And so uh, I was born in Bosnia, even though I grew up in the States for most of my life. I came over when I was like five years old with my family. At home, we spoke Serbo-Croatian. I very much grew up in that culture. And the very first name that I knew and and the one that I most identify with is Barbara. Uh, But as soon as I started going to school in America, that was immediately turned to Barbara. And it's weird. Like Sometimes it's even hard for me to uh, to say that and not trip over my own tongue because it just doesn't, it's never sounded like my name. It doesn't feel like me when I introduce myself to others. But I think from a young age, I felt uh, a huge need to also fit in among my classmates, uh, to have my teachers like me. And so I uh, decided to take Barbara and make the best of it. Yeah, I can really relate to that. So I had a similar issue when I moved to the States because in Russian, I would introduce myself as Sofia Melchenko. But in English, of course, that turned into Sofia Omalchenko. And then later, after I got married um, to Sofia Bourne, and now it feels like I almost have two different identities for two different countries. Since we're on the topic of childhood, who did you want to be when you were growing up? Yeah, gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, I have these vague memories of being in elementary school and standing up on a stage because we were doing uh, like a career day type thing for our families. And we had to come into school dressed as the profession we wanted to be. And I remember dressing up as a teacher 
but looking back, I don't know if I dressed up as the teacher because that was like the easiest costume that we had at home, which is basically just like a white button down shirt and a skirt. Uh, but I, I think I did actually really want to be a teacher, mainly because I loved my teachers. Um, I didn't always feel understood by them, I don't think, looking back on it, but I respected them. And yeah, I mean, they were the ones who were giving me my English. They were the ones who were giving me so much knowledge that I that I cherished so much who introduced me to the love of reading and acting and theater and uh, yeah so I had immense respect for my teachers so I think I probably did want to be a teacher when I was really young and then as I grew older it morphed and I I went through so many different phases of of what I thought I wanted to do I thought I wanted to be a therapist or a social worker later on in life I did think that I wanted to be an actress at one point I thought I was going to be an astronomer like I was so all over the place um and definitely the type of person to kind of follow my heart and see where those paths would lead me and I kind of went into all of them pretty full-heartedly I think pretty early on, I recognized that I had a strong ability to empathize with others and uh, that I liked doing that. I liked helping people. I was the person in my friend groups who everyone would go to, you know, with their problems. And um, yeah, so I think from, from an early age, I knew that I wanted to help people, but it took me a long time to figure out where that need was coming from and, or that, that desire was coming from. And I think it also took me a long time to figure out exactly who I wanted to help and what I could do to help, what I had to contribute. And how did you manage to discover that? So um, initially I thought I wanted to go into astronomy after high school and kind of pursue that wholeheartedly for a year. And then something about it just didn't, didn't feel right. And then I discovered acting and theater, which was always kind of a passion of mine in high school. And so I switched universities, uh, went to pursue a degree in acting in a university in Canada, and had just like the greatest time while I was there. But again, I think I always had this like nagging feeling like I wasn't doing enough or something was missing. And um, pretty quickly uh, into my year in Canada, I discovered this program that focuses on training up volunteers and sending them overseas to the Thai-Burma border. Uh, and it was this small nonprofit that worked in the township where I lived. And as a student, you had to apply uh, for the program. And then after you did, and if you were accepted, you uh, spent about six months learning how to teach English as a second language. You uh, learned all about Burmese culture and history and uh, about the Burmese refugee crisis. And then you were sent to the Thai Burma border to, to live for six months and work with, uh, with their partner schools. And I remember first seeing the, the poster advertising this program and encouraging students to apply and be feeling immediately drawn to it. And initially I thought it was like, Oh, I just like can't sit still and I want a new adventure. And, um, I'm just going to do this thing because it's wild and it's kind of what I do. But the more I thought about it, the more that I realized that I I had never up until that point really gotten to explore my own identity uh, as an immigrant, as a refugee. And when I did initially get into the program and 
uh, started having these meetings and these conversations with the other women who were accepted and the program leaders, I just felt such a relief to finally be able to bring my experience to the table in these conversations. And yeah, doing that, that programming and then actually going uh, to live on the Thai Burma border, you know, I have no, um, like I, I don't think that my going and teaching English on the Thai Burma border did necessarily any good for anyone who was living on the Thai Burma border, anyone I worked with, but it was an incredible experience for me personally, because it became very clear to me in that moment that this is the population that I want to work with. Like this part of my identity is really important to me. It has shaped me in ways that I'm still discovering today. And, um, and I just connect with and feel so deeply about this population of people. So I like, yeah, it was super roundabout the way that I discovered it, but I'd like to think that it was always there and that I just needed to discover it. Um, so yeah, I found out that that was the the population that I wanted to serve and, and who I wanted to help. Um, and then after that, it took me another like two, three, three years, probably longer. Uh, oh God, maybe even like six years to discover what exactly it is I had to contribute to that space. Um, I could continue teaching, I could continue being in the classroom, I can continue doing direct service work, which was all of my experience up until uh, joining Donors Choose. Um, or it turns out I could be a data scientist and um, I could bring those skills into the space uh, where I think it's really needed. Okay, wait. So before we go into your journey into data science, um, I just want to pick up on something you said about teaching in the refugee camps um, and you thinking that it may not have been as beneficial to people you were working with as it was to you. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, oh, I have such complicated feelings about it. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm really proud of the way that I handled that experience. I mean, I was sent to the border uh, we were living on the, the Thailand side of the Thai-Burma border, but working solely with Burmese uh, refugees and migrants and asylees. And uh, yeah, I, I'm i proud of the way that I handled myself. At I think I was 18 years old at the time. I uh, fully embedded myself in the community that I was there to serve. I like was allergic to expats and never hung out with anyone other than the women who were in my group and and my students and my teachers. And um, as a result, I ended up not only working in the schools where I was assigned, but I found um, this adult learning center in town where I developed relationships with the Burmese men who were running that program and, um, and ended up additionally volunteering there and doing like computer literacy and financial literacy with adults, which felt um, like a better use of time than uh, English instruction. Yeah, and I think I, I made a lot of close relationships. Like I'm still in touch with some of my students and some of the people who I met on the border, some of the Burmese people who I met on the border. And so I, I'm proud of that. And I think in some ways, my building those close relationships and just having conversations with people and uh, trying to provide resources where I could, I think that, uh, I hope that was helpful in some ways to someone. But um, I think going as a young person to teach English overseas with minimal training, despite how 
how good my intentions were. I don't think that I was providing the best possible instruction. Um, I think these students were benefiting more from the instruction of their Burmese teachers who are teaching history and math and science. Um, And many of the students that I taught, the, the vast majority, are not using the English that they learned. Um, they're fighting now to get jobs and uh, trying to go to college. And, you know, there were like, I think, two, three examples of students who really got lucky and uh, were able to get into Thai universities. And there, their English, I think, is helping them because some of the instruction is in English and all of that. But it just, looking back on it, it it definitely was more impactful for me and it made me feel like I was doing something more than I think it it actually um, helped the majority of the students that I was working with. And then also there's this like, I, I think a lot of people who go through these experiences will say this, um, or I hope that they'll reflect on this, but there's just like so much weird stuff around my being this white English teacher and being so revered as like a native English speaker way more so than their Burmese instructors who were way more qualified and were doing better work. And um, so like that dynamic was really uncomfortable and um, in general feeling revered as a Westerner just like doesn't feel right. And um, right. Like it's so complicated because of the the colonial history in Burma. And um, yeah, so I, I think all of it just, um, it was an amazing experience for me. I met a lot of amazing people. It uh, changed the way that I think about the world, but it also changed the way that I think about, you know, people going over to do volunteerism or um, to to volunteer overseas without proper training. Um, and yeah, I, if I could do it again, I would rather be embedded in like a nonprofit uh, on the ground and and add some skills or. Um, you know, be able to to help add capacity in some way as opposed to just teaching, I think. That's really interesting. So what would you suggest to someone who wanted to take some time off um, and maybe go volunteer overseas? Would you suggest that they join a local NGO? Yeah. Oh, and it's, uh, it's so hard for me to say because in some ways I feel selfish because I did have this experience uh, and it was amazing for me. And so, you know, who am I to say don't don't go and do this because I think the individual will still grow and and gain a lot from it. But I think I would say explore all opportunities and um, do a lot of research and uh, talk to people who have uh, done this type of work and really like ask yourself the question, will I be making a difference? Who am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? I think those are all important questions. And if after, at the end of all that, you're like, I feel really passionate about teaching and I think teaching English is important. And I think that is the most important thing I can contribute at this time, then, you know, great, go and do that. But yeah, I think uh, there are so many good local nonprofits that are doing amazing work, so many great community leaders that need support. And there are different ways of of supporting. Uh, If you have a technical skill, like maybe someone wants to build up a website to be able to share what they're doing more widely, or there is like a local newspaper that's being run, and uh, you're a strong writer or editor, or you have some skills in that front. Um, I think it's, it is important to find out the, the thing that you can contribute and 
and really what is most needed. And the way to do that, I think, is by listening to people who are already doing that work in that community. Yeah, that's so true. So how did you go from teaching English on the Thai-Burmese border to joining Donor's Shoes? Another long and winding road. Um, so after, so I, I took time off from school to go live on the border and um, I did that for about six months, uh, a very short period of time. And then uh, after that, I realized, okay, I now know the population I want to serve. I know that I don't want to do astronomy. I know I don't want to be an actress. Um, in order to, to get a job that I think is meaningful, I need to go back and actually get my degree in, in, in something that I think will allow me to serve this population. So I ended up coming back to the States and attending my third university uh, in, uh, in two years, I guess, and um, finishing up the last year and a half of my degree um, and in New Paltz, which is a small town in upstate New York, this state college. And I ended up getting my degree in communication and media and international relations. And the, the reason why I chose those two was because one, like the international relations piece, I knew that I was passionate about humanitarian work and international politics. Um, and then the communication and media piece, I decided to make my main focus because I wanted to, uh, to get a degree that I thought would lead to some tangible skills. And at that point, I still thought maybe something in education was where I would go or, or something with direct service. And so I wanted to focus on interpersonal and intercultural communication, which was the kind of focus of my degree. So I did that, finished my uh, my degree in a year and a half, uh, somehow to the surprise of my parents who thought I would be in college forever after taking so much time off. And yeah, and then after that, I started looking for for jobs. And, you know, in between, I was actually interning and, and working with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, which is where we met during my summers in between uh, getting my degree done. And when I finished, I thought like, oh, the IRC is where I need to be. It's where I want to be. And sure enough, you know, a degree such as mine with uh, barely any like real experience uh, was not going to get me a job at the IRC. I ended up getting like a coordinator gig at one of the schools where they had programs in Brooklyn, uh, but it was part time. And every other job listing that I saw, even though I knew people at the IRC at this point, right, like I had an in, I had connections, um, everything required like five years of on the ground experience working with this population. Um, and that would just like, it, it just like couldn't work for me. And, um, and I also, I didn't want to dive into something that I didn't think I was qualified for because I wanted to make sure that I was adding that value, right? Like I, I had had this experience previously uh, working on the Thai Burma border and felt like I hadn't added value. And so I didn't want that to happen again. And when I was working with the IRC in a more structured environment uh, that I was qualified to work in, I felt like I, I was making a much bigger impact uh, through those programs. So I wanted to find the right thing. And honestly, looking back, I probably didn't apply for some things that maybe I should have because I was also fresh out of college, not confident in my abilities. I had no idea where I would fit in, in, in an organization like the IRC. So yeah, I didn't end up applying for a lot of gigs, some gigs I did apply for, and I just never heard back. And, and I was feeling pretty discouraged about all of it. And, um, yeah, I think if I, 
knowing what I know now, having been in the workforce and having put myself out there, I would have told young me, it is your job to apply. It is someone else's job to uh, figure out whether or not you're qualified. So I think I probably would have put myself out a whole lot more in those early days. Um, but long story short, did not get a job at the IRC, a full-time job. And every other organization that I applied for, like all of these like nonprofits that were either doing human rights work, which I was very passionate about, or humanitarian work, I just never heard back from anyone. So, you know, I was also in this position where I was living in New York City. I needed to make money. I needed health care. Um, I felt very strongly that I wanted to be financially independent and, and have, um, yeah, and, and, and feel good that way. I think partially because growing up, we didn't have a ton of money. And it was always very important for me to not feel like I was burdening my parents or um, that I could pay off my student loans, that I could pay my own bills. I could, uh, I could do those things. So I ended up eventually getting a job at a private school in New York uh, because all of my experience thus far had been working with students in classrooms and uh, was able to get a, a gig at this private school and was there for God, only like three months and I like it was hard to handle like I was in this school that was so resource rich uh, there were 3D printers and like amazing classes for everyone to take. And um, many of the students came from very wealthy, very privileged backgrounds. And um, while I got along really well with the students and I mean, they were facing their own types of problems. I worked with middle schoolers and high schoolers and being that age, regardless of where you're growing up is really hard. And, and they were great, but I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile with what I was seeing here, knowing that just across town, there were students that I worked with through the IRC who were having a very different experience. And one of my friends, uh, who actually used to be my teacher, he was working at Donors Choose at the time, and uh, I had known about Donors Choose for a while through him, and. Uh, what Donors Choose does is it it tries to to level that playing field, so it gives the opportunity for everyday Americans, everyday citizens, to support a classroom and and bring much needed resources and experiences into classrooms that are under resourced. And uh, here I was, like on the daily, being confronted by this huge gap between private schools and public schools, between some public schools and other public schools. And it felt like, yeah, this, this is where I can start. I have experienced both sides of this. Uh, I feel really passionately about education. In some ways, I will be helping to serve the community I most care about because our public school system has plenty of, of, of students who are refugees, who are immigrants, um, and I can I can start here and um, I can actually get some experience working kind of a desk job at a nonprofit. Uh, so I can start building up my resume and and maybe in the process I thought I'll even find out exactly what I can do, what value I can add. And so I applied for a job at Donors Choose and uh, was very fortunate to to get it. Was it difficult to get the job? Um, so I have to say that the interview process at Donors Choose is pretty intense. 
And I think it's actually gotten more intense uh, in, in the years since. It's really quite comprehensive and and it is really competitive. And so I think in that way, it was the one of the more rigorous interview experiences I had ever had at that point. But I was applying for a very entry-level customer service job at the time. Uh, I think the role was like donor relations or something. And you know, if I'm being honest, I wasn't like thrilled by that. Like I didn't think that I wanted to do customer service my whole life, Uh, but it was something, it was like a foot in the door. And because it was so entry level, I could talk about all of my different experiences in a way that could fit the role, right? There was no like needed technical experience. There was no very specific management experience that I needed to have. Like all of the boxes that I needed to check for such an entry-level role were pretty vague. So like good communicator, empathetic, um, you know, organized, can work in a team. And even though I hadn't worked in a nonprofit before, or even at a real desk job anywhere, I could point to my experiences in the classroom and how that was an exercise in empathy and navigating tricky situations. And I could very clearly draw a line between that and customer service. You know, I, I had no ego about it. I didn't, despite the experience that I had, I, you know, didn't think that I was above an entry level job where I would be mainly answering customer service tickets. I was just like thrilled to find anything uh, where I might be qualified and and could get a start. And so I think all of that really helped. And I think overall it didn't, yeah, the process didn't seem that scary or or it it didn't feel like it was, I guess, that hard to get the gig uh, because I think my attitude and, and in some ways the experiences I had were were relevant or I could at least make them seem relevant. I think that's such an important point to highlight. I feel like a lot of people experience this restlessness or, you know, that pressure after college to immediately land the dream job. Um, And I know I did, um, when in reality, what you need to do is get that foot in the door so that you can navigate your way to the dream job rather than just waiting that you miraculously would land in it. Um, So what happened next to you? How did you go from working in customer service to being a data scientist? Yeah, I think when I first got the gig, well, one, I I was pretty thrilled. I had a job that had amazing benefits, amazing healthcare. Like I had vision and dental, like it was was mind blowing. And I had reached my first uh, goal, which was to become financially independent and to be able to support myself, which felt amazing. And so I was riding that wave for, for a little while. And I also learned that I very quickly that I loved donors choose. So I may not have been thrilled with all aspects of my day-to-day work. You know, customer service work is super grueling. Like I was just typing emails for a long time to people while I was learning the the job and the organization. But the people there were just so incredible. Like I was welcomed with open arms onto this team that had just such brilliant people. And donors choose, I think I'm so lucky that it's the type of place where there is a ton of room to grow and there are really good people managers. I was working under someone who uh, cared about me and my and my career growth, who sought opportunities for me. And donors choose is also the type of place where if you 
see something that you're interested in and you think it's important and you think it'll add value to the business, you can just kind of start clawing your way at that thing. And over time, if you like prove yourself and it does add value, people will just let you do that. And and it's pretty common for people to kind of uh, grow into a brand new role or carve out a brand new path that has never even existed at Donors Choose uh, because they're just putting in the time and proving that it works. And then they're given the kind of the runway to do that as long as, you know, their their day-to-day work is 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 being met, like their, their day-to-day goals. And so uh, pretty quickly after starting, um, after I kind of uh, left the honeymoon phase of of this like beautiful place in this beautiful office with these beautiful people who somehow were all very nice to each other and uh, very smart. And, um, you know, the business was thriving, all of these good things were happening. I started really gravitating towards the parts of my work that involved data and digging into uh, our donor and teacher experience and being able to really understand what was going on or what was driving a customer service problem. So it wasn't the customer service work that was interesting to me, but it was like, oh God, well, I've answered like 10 emails today about this one thing, like something has to be going on. Let me go and learn these like data analytics tools, these event tracking tools on our website, you know, and I was never really technical before. Like I, I was now suddenly working at a website right? Donor Shoes is not a typical nonprofit. We're based solely online. And, and I was surrounded by all of these tools that I had never had access to before, but I knew that I wanted to learn them because I was so curious and I had all these questions to answer. And I'm not the type of person who likes to ask other people to answer my questions. I just like want to know how to do the thing so I can very quickly find my own answers. And so I started gravitating towards these tools and and learning um, how to use our internal data analytics systems and was really loving that. And I did that for for probably about a year um, and started getting deeper and deeper into the data side of things. And, um, and after a year, there was an opportunity on another team in the organization that opened up a manager level role um, that had not existed before um, that would focus on our donors and our partners and basically the role was to use data and experiment and and figure out what makes donors and partners happy uh, what can we do to improve our process and our systems and and the way that we do things in order to get more people to come back and give more and ultimately help more classrooms and I I jumped on that. Um, again, I was super fortunate that my manager, right, this person who it's in their best interest to keep me on their team doing work so that they don't have to hire another person. She actually suggested that I apply for that role internally, that I put myself out there, even though initially when I saw the word manager, I thought, no way, I'm not ready yet after just a year. Uh, but she encouraged me to apply and and I did, and, and it was really scary. Internal moves, I think, can be even more stressful than applying for somewhere externally. Like you have to see these people every day. If you don't get it, you know, you're. It, it could be embarrassing. It could feel like you're not doing good work. Um, you're really putting yourself out there. And at Donors Choose, the internal hiring process was just as rigorous. You know, I had to interview with several people. They really do their due diligence, um, and. 
I was lucky enough to, to get that job and I moved over to this other team and um, again, had just like the most amazing manager who really trusted me and gave me a lot of room. And, and finally, like I was in this role where I had no customer service to do. All I had to do was just like play with these tools and ask good questions and run experiments and, you know, find opportunities. And, and I, I loved doing that. And very quickly, I, um, in about a year, I suppose I grew from, um, owning this like one, one piece of the donor experience into, into a much bigger role. And I was, I was lucky enough to be promoted to a director and then get to hire someone. And I was managing two people by the time that I, I left that role because I, I, I found opportunities and I grabbed everything I could and, and I, uh, you know, stayed after hours to, to work and learn and um, just kind of threw all of the energy I had into this job because I loved it. Like I was, I was like in data all the time and, um, and really loved the work that I was doing. And through that, I think it finally dawned on me one day, like, okay, you really love the work that you're doing because of the data, because you get to ask questions and find creative ways of uh, getting to the answers using data analysis. I remember the day that I, uh, I think the first people that I told, like the, the first person who I told out loud, I think I want to be a data scientist, was my manager. Uh, because we just had this like amazing relationship and I knew that she wanted to see me grow professionally. And I remember being kind of terrified to even say those words out loud. Like I had never met a data scientist who looked like me, who talked like me. Um, it's a super male dominated field. Um, and I was terrified. Like if I said this thing out loud and then I tried to go for it and it didn't happen, like what would I do? Like that'd be so embarrassing. I, um, and I like, I wanted it. Like I knew, like I had, had this growing feeling inside me for a long time. Like this is, this is what I want to do. And I remember telling her this being so scared and her kind of laughing at, at, at how anxiety invoking this was for me. And, and immediately she started like keeping her eyes peeled for opportunities for me. I quickly grew to be the person on the team who was kind of responsible for, for data at large and, and these type of projects and all of that was great. And, um, in between all of that, I was kind of courting our, the data scientists who were currently working on the team as, as mentors and, uh, kind of ingratiating myself with them and volunteering to help them with projects outside of my day to day work, working on that stuff nights and weekends, you know, to get them to like me and notice me and see that I had an aptitude for this thing. I spent a lot of time talking to my peer mentor group. I had this amazing group of women who I meet with monthly where we are all in similar points in our careers and we just meet and we like talk about our challenges and, and the things we want to accomplish and we, we talk about how we can get there. So I was doing all of that. I was learning SQL on the side, online. At one point, there was a professional development opportunity in-house that was created, this data master's program where um, we would spend, I think we had like four boot camps or something after work from 7 to 10 p.m. Uh, where if you could, if you applied and, and you got in, you would get to learn uh, SQL in depth. You would get to learn our internal data analytics tools really well. And so I, I jumped on that opportunity 
eventually I ended up taking uh, classes after work uh, at General Assembly, which is this like adult learning center uh, in data science. So I learned Python and all about machine learning. And I like, I basically was like a, a woman possessed for that year. I like spoke out loud this thing that I wanted. And then I found every opportunity to do it in my day to day. And I found every opportunity outside of my day to day work at Donors Choose to do it even more and, and meet people and get mentors and, and learn the technical skills needed to do this thing. And, and as I was doing that, I thought, okay, you know, I just have to be patient. It's probably going to take me like three to five years to get to where I want to go, but I think I'm like on the right track. And sure enough, about a year after I think I had spoken out loud this, this like wish to my manager, one of our data scientists, decided to leave the organization and suddenly there was this this opening and the other data scientist that stayed on the team at this point was uh, certainly a mentor to me if not even a, a manager already like I was really um, taking on cases for him and and doing a lot of work for him at that point and I had kind of raised my hand and Everyone in the organization knew Barbara is the data person. I had just finished this data science class. Like all, everything aligned perfectly. And and when he left, they they asked me if I if I wanted to take his place and become a data scientist on the team. And I think like when that happened, I don't even know what I did that day. Like I must have just like been in this haze because in my wildest dreams, I hadn't thought that a year after like deciding, okay, I'm going to go all in on this thing that I, that my like wildest dream would come true and I would get to be a data scientist. And, and yeah, it's hard to believe that, you know, just three and a half years ago, I was joining Donors Choose as someone who was doing customer service, you know, like it's such a wild, wild journey. It is. And I love that it illustrates something I deeply believe in, which is, um, you know, setting a goal and committing to it 100%, but also trusting that once you set out on the journey and start to put in the work, that things will start to align for you. So now that you're a data scientist, can you talk a bit about what your day looks like? Um, What do you do on a daily basis? So there's like a few different things that Thomas and I, who's the other data scientist, are responsible for. Um, And on a daily basis, I am usually uh, making progress on a longer term project. So that longer term project is either like a bigger analysis on something that we that we want to know about. Like I did this pretty in-depth analysis a few months back about uh, donor retention. So trying to pinpoint exactly who the people are that are going to come back, what characteristics do they have, why are they coming back, all in an effort to to shape our website product and, um, and our marketing efforts to make sure we're getting more people to come back, right? As, as nonprofits, uh, typically there's a huge problem with donor retention. Our numbers, I think, are pretty good. I think we have about a 20% donor retention rate. But for other nonprofits, it's much lower. And, and it, it's hard to get people to come back again and again and, and give money. But this is what you rely on, right? Um, and it's so much cheaper to get someone who's already in the door to come back than to get a brand new person to come in. Um, so, yeah, in any given day, we're, we're pushing forward a long-term project like that that takes a couple of 
weeks, if not a couple of months to complete. So either like a really long analysis or um, we work on, you know, machine learning products. So can we automate something? Can we uh, create a recommendation system for every single donor, you know, kind of more complicated AI stuff. Um, And then along with pushing forward a longer term project, uh, every day we're working on smaller projects that take anywhere between from a couple of hours to a couple of days for teams across the organization. Um, We have done a really good job at Donors Choose at democratizing data. So every single person has access to all of our data. And there are no business decisions that are made without consulting data. And so because everyone has access to it and every every team within the organization needs it to do their work, um, we support all of those people. Um, so if someone needs, um, you know, a new type of data, so we need to do some data engineering work to make sure we're collecting this new information. Or maybe someone has a problem that they're trying to solve and it's going to take some analysis, but it's pretty quick, so we can help them with that. Or someone is is looking to answer a question, but there's no easy way to answer that question. So we have to maybe build something in our data analytics tools to allow them to, to do that. So it's kind of a, a mix of those two. So these like shorter term projects that are helping different teams reach their business goals and then longer term, more in-depth data science projects that are also helping the business, but in slightly different ways. And in general, what would you say is the value of data science for the nonprofit sector? I mean, I think on the, the marketing side of things, right, all nonprofits depend on funding from somewhere. Um, and I think Donor Shoes is in a fortunate position to depend on most of its funding from citizen donors. So we have a, a more traditional kind of marketing team um, and run more traditional types of marketing campaigns and email marketing. But um, I remember I was talking to uh, a woman from an organization that I will uh, not name, but she works for an NGO that is is massive. Like certainly, I think every single person who listens to this will have heard of this organization. They have this incredible brand. I donate to this organization all the time. And I was running this workshop on how to build a data-driven nonprofit. And afterwards, she came up to me and she talked about how their email marketing team is afraid of sending emails to donors to ask for more money because they don't track who has unsubscribed from emails accurately. And so they're, they're just afraid of sending out emails. And this was just astounding to me. Like if you are not using data science in your marketing efforts, you are leaving money on the table. You know, at, at Donors Choose, we A-B test everything, meaning we we have a version of something like, let's say, an email, like a campaign email for maybe end of year giving, a huge time for nonprofits. And we send out that email and we send out uh, an email to the exact same population, a subset with different maybe email copy or a different call to action or whatever it is. And, and we test and we see which one performs better. And we have built out such a robust infrastructure to to be able to do that, that we do that test in the morning, we see which one performs better. And then to our uh, larger donor population, we send out the winning email. And maybe the winning email performed like 0.1% better. But if you multiply that by, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people were emailing, 
that is a lot of money that potentially we would have left on the table if we hadn't been able to test and take a data-driven approach to fundraising. So yeah, I'm just always astounded by organizations, nonprofit and for-profit, who are not using data to make more informed decisions. Because ultimately, I think they're leaving money on the table that they can then use to support their programming or that they can use to write to to further their mission and, and support the communities that they are here to serve. So I think it's uh, short-sighted to not invest in this technology uh, and the infrastructure to, to run experiments and to to be really data-driven because ultimately you will get that back like tenfold. Um, so I think that's one big part of it. And then on the actual programming front, like right, reporting and being able to quantify your impact is so important, especially for more traditional nonprofits. And and I think having a data scientist on the team or a data analyst or even just the infrastructure in place so that other people on the team can be asking questions and, and getting at these answers will not only allow you to make sure that you're making the right impact and uh, allow you to actually talk about that impact with confidence, but I think it also unleashes a ton of creativity when people can ask questions and immediately get the answers and, and, and get answers that are backed by data, because you might find that there's something you should be changing in your programming, or there's a really creative solution out there to the problem you're trying to tackle, uh, but you just don't know because you, you can't even look at your own results in a really uh, nuanced way. I want to talk about some of the biggest lessons and the biggest challenges that you encountered um, in becoming a data scientist. So clearly you had to tackle a massive learning curve, develop a brand new skill from scratch, you know, constantly push yourself outside your comfort zone. But are there any lessons that you learned that stand out to you in particular? I think I've learned the importance of having a strong peer group, the that group of women that I mentioned that I meet with regularly like that has been just so game changing having a safe space regardless of what that looks like for you to to talk about your goals and and to really like talk through tangible ways that you can get there that has been so important and the friendships and relationships that I've built at donors choose have just been incredible and um, everyone who I'm close with there has mentored me at some point or another whether or not they're my peer or they're a manager and has helped me navigate tricky situations and I would not be where I am today if not for those people if not for asking for help and for guidance um, so I think that has been really helpful and humbling and yeah just just incredible and then I think the other thing that I've learned is that if so, if, it, if something is holding you back, it feels like it's usually a perception or, ugh, yeah, and I, I, I like waffle on that because obviously there's like, especially in uh, places like the United States, there's, you know, systemic repression and oppression of certain groups. And so I can speak for, for myself and what I felt. And I know that it's not the same for everyone. But for me, at least at Donors Choose, it's felt like if I put in the hours and I put in the, the work, if I find an opportunity and I go for it and, you know, maybe that means that I have to work until 9 p.m. that day. Like if I just like do it, I eventually I will get to where I want to go. And I realize that that's so simplistic and it's not possible depending on your situation. But yeah, I think that that has been really powerful for me to feel like I I can do it. I just need to ask for help. 
I need to say it out loud. And I, then I just need to put in like the sheer number of hours. Um, and then, yeah, I need to get lucky along the way as well. And what about some of the challenges? I think what's been hard is for me personally, because I think I'm pretty neurotic, um, is, is feeling like I'm not making progress fast enough. Um, so even now, like, you know, when is it enough? Right. So I've like reached this big dream of mine that I thought would take me years to reach like this, this thing that I so deeply wanted. I now have. And I remember getting the job feeling kind of on cloud nine for the first month. And then literally on day 30 being like, okay, what's next? I can relate. It's the worst. Yeah. Right. And then like, and it happens every time and I don't know what to do about it. And then, you know, part of me feels like maybe this is a good thing. Like maybe I'm where I'm at now because I have this mindset. Like maybe, you know, maybe I'll never be truly happy in life, but maybe that's okay because, you know, I'll like make progress and I'll help more people and I'll add more value. Um, but yeah, truly it, it never feels like enough. It never feels like I'm doing a good enough job. Like I'm helping enough, um, you know, I, I think part of it is because I have yet to get back to serving that population that I know ultimately I want to serve. So I'm not even yet at exactly where I want to be. Um, but yeah, in general, I'm just, I feel that so deeply. And I know that you do. And and so many of my peers feel this way. And, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but it's hard to be patient. It's hard to not get super down on yourself. And, um, it's something that I still struggle with every day. So if you have any suggestions or tips, (laughs) I'm all ears. (laughs) I'm afraid I don't. Um, I struggle with it all the time myself, though. And like you say, I think a lot of our friends and peers do as well. So I don't know if it's a matter of upbringing or a certain background or generational thing. Yeah, maybe this is the millennial curse. It's not that we just jump around from job to job. It's just that we're never satisfied. (laughs) I, and I think there is this, you know, gendered aspect too. like a lot of these technical fields in particular are, are male dominated. And I think what really helped me was reaching out to people for help. Um, I remember this one woman who I connected with pretty early on, uh, who is this badass female data scientist, just like getting coffee with her and hearing her story and having someone who's doing this work who I respect just reassure me like you're doing everything you can, like you're taking the right steps or, you know, having this person say, actually, I think it would be better if you focused your time on X or Y. All of that was so helpful and and gave me the confidence to know that I was on the right track, that even if I had a hiccup that day or that week, like at least I was pursuing the right thing. And so, you know, maybe I didn't quite, you know, get this one lesson this one time, but it's fine because overall you're like on the right path. So I think that really helped. And, and it also really taught me that people out there want to help. And now I see this in myself. Like I'm always so eager to talk with young women who are trying to get into data science or in general to talk about data science. Um, and I, and I found that all of the women that I reached out to, even if some of them have these like crazy jobs, they're so successful. They're like famous in the field of data science, but they're totally willing to meet with a young woman who wants to get into this field. And so I think a big thing that I learned in general was that like, asking for help is okay. And there are people out there who will want to help. 
and there were male data scientists who who were you know really kind to me and and helpful as well so you know not even just women but i felt most comfortable reaching out to other women in this space initially so yeah i think that really helped to motivate me and made me feel confident in what i was doing but yeah it's really hard and it it's hard to not feel good at something like i remember uh, when I first started this job, I basically would come home every day and like not quite cry, I don't think, but I I was feeling really down. And even still sometimes I'm six months in, but I'm like, oh my God, I hate not being good at my job. Like I went from being really good at my job, from really knowing what I was doing and, and being an expert in this thing to now being the lowest person on the totem pole. And I'm learning every day and I'm so excited by it, but it's really hard to not feel like the expert in the room to um, to be in that stage. And it could be really crushing if you let it be. But I think for me, it was like acknowledging this is hard. It's hard for everyone. It will pass and telling myself to be patient. These are all probably really obvious things to say now. And if you had asked me like four months ago, I probably would have crumbled um, under this question. But yeah, I think that's really important. And I think because I've put myself out there so often, every time I've kind of had a career switch or uh, a change in my passions, every time it was really hard and every time it got better and it passed. And so I think having that knowledge helps motivate me or at least helps me to feel like, okay, it's not going to feel shitty forever. Yes. And I think that discomfort of going back to the start again and again is so necessary for growing because if you just reach the quote unquote top um, and then just stop, then what is even the point? Well, yeah. And I think also this kind of goes to my approach that I talked about earlier about how I Initially, when I started at Donors Choose, I had no qualms about starting super entry level at the very bottom to like learn and, and grow from there. And, you know, I think some people might see this recent career shift that I made as like a demotion. Um, I feel like if you look at my LinkedIn, you see this like progression of associate to manager to director. Um, I was managing people. I was doing running strategy. I was leading a team. And now I am a data scientist. I don't manage anyone. I'm told what to do. You know, I'm told what my projects are. And, you know, right, it's like this big career shift into a technical role. But I think some people were would probably feel like, oh, you're so crazy. Like, and, and maybe they wouldn't have tried for anything other than like a director of data science or, or anything to maybe keep the title or or not feel like they were going um, and taking a step down. But for me, I totally just see it as an opportunity to, yeah, start from scratch, be the lowest person on the totem pole, but like learn a ton and like you'll get there again um, if that's where you want to go. But it's important to learn the basics, I think. Yeah, I agree. This is actually a good segue into my last question, which I pose to everyone who comes on to speak on this podcast. Um, so what do you think success is and what does it mean to you? What is success? I guess success is uh, finally uh, feeling satisfied <laughs> or like you are doing enough. Um, I think, yeah, I think success to me is not a job title. I don't think success to me is getting to the top of the ladder because inevitably I think you will get to the top of that ladder and feel like what is next. Um, I think the way that I've thought about it for the past few years and the way that I'm still thinking about it is 
success to me is being able to to know what I care about and who I want to serve or what I want to do and knowing exactly how best to do that and what value I could add. And then uh, I guess the real success part comes in in actually being able to do that. So I, I don't think I'm there yet. I need to get a lot better at what I'm doing now. And then I need to find a way to best take those skills and apply them into the sector that I want to eventually end up in and help the people that I want to help. So I, yeah, I think for me, success is a lot about like being self-reflective and having a deep understanding of who you are and what you can do and, and what value you can add and should add. And then actually like doing that thing, hopefully well. I want to say a huge thank you to Barbara for such an honest and detailed reflection on her career journey so far. It's been amazing listening to her story of willing her biggest dream to life with grit and grace. And I hope that you've learned and have been inspired as much as I have. You can find show notes and previous episodes at Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A, doeswords.com, slash meaningful. And if you haven't already, please make sure to rate and review Meaningful on iTunes and share it with anyone who you think could benefit from stories of young people changing the world for the better. Thank you for listening to Meaningful, and I'll see you next time.